Today is Wednesday, October the 12th, 2022. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key, and my colleague is Joe King. Do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how Facebook, Google, Amazon, and other big tech companies are using your personal data? Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network, prn.live, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. You can leave us a message with your question or comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. Since 2004, the President of the United States and Congress have declared October to be Cybersecurity Awareness Month, helping individuals protect themselves online as threats to technology and confidential data become more commonplace. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, that's a CISA, and the National Cybersecurity Alliance, NCA, led a collaborative effort between government and industry to raise cybersecurity awareness nationally and internationally. See Yourself in Cyber is this year's campaign theme. That means enabling basic cyber hygiene practices. Update your software, think before you click, have good strong passwords or a password keeper, and enable multi-factor authentication, meaning you need more than a password on all your sensitive accounts. Four things you can do. Throughout October, CISA and NCA will highlight key action steps that everyone should take. Think before you click. Recognize and report phishing. If a link looks a little off, think before you click. It could be an attempt to get sensitive information or install malware. Update your software. Don't delay. If you see a software update notification, act promptly. Better yet, turn on automatic updates. Use strong passwords. Use passwords that are long, unique, and randomly generated. Use password managers to generate and remember different, complex passwords for each of your accounts. A passwords manager will encrypt passwords, securing them for you. Enable multi-factor authentication. You need more than a password to protect your online accounts, and enabling multi-factor authentication makes you significantly less likely to get hacked. Over 50% of CEOs say they're considering cutting jobs over the next six months, and remote workers may be the first to go. Looming recession alarms are gaining in the United States and elsewhere, but calls back to the office for full-time work are a lot softer. Most CEOs across the globe share the view that a recession is on the horizon and coming sooner than later, according to a report from KPMG on business leader outlooks. KPMG is one of the big four major accounting firms in the world. Nine in ten CEOs in the United States, that's 91%, believe a recession will arrive in the coming 12 months, while 86% of CEOs globally feel the same way, 
according to the findings from the international audit tax and advisory firm. That echoes the foreboding predictions coming from big-name Wall Street investors. In America, half of the CEOs, that's 51%, say they're considering workforce reductions during the next six months, and in global survey overall, 8 in 10 CEOs say the same. One caveat for people who like working from home, remote workers may find it in their best interest to show their faces in the office as their job security becomes more uncertain. It is likely, and or extremely likely, that remote workers will be laid off first, according to a majority that's 60% of 3,000 managers polled. Another 20% were undecided, and the remaining 20% said it wasn't likely. When asked how they foresaw their company's working arrangements in three years from jobs traditionally in an office, nearly half of U.S. CEOs, 45%, said it would be a hybrid mix of in-person and remote work. One-third, or 34%, said the jobs would still be in office, and 20% said it was fully remote. CEOs across the globe sounded more keen on in-person work. Two-thirds, that's 65%, said in-office work was the ideal, while 28% said hybrid would be the way, and 7% said it would be fully remote. The global findings pulled from U.S. business leaders, but also from CEOs in Australia, Canada, China, India, Japan, and certain EU countries and the United Kingdom. Workers feel emboldened. It's difficult to know why global numbers are so different from the United States, and they are very different. KPMG U.S. Chair and CEO said, In the United States, we certainly have a hybrid environment as our predominant model going forward for the future. The tight job market is one reason for the hybrid work dynamic, he noted. But so are the fresh memories in recent years, highlighting just how much companies need their employees. The slew of initial layoffs to deal with a short, sharp recession during COVID-19's early stages soon morph into attempts to staff up. Many workers weighed career choices and saw that the jobs market suddenly tip in their favor. Employers in the United States very much recognize people as their greatest asset, so employees are receiving a bit more attention about where they work in the future. Other research suggests there's no full-time torrent of workers back to the office. Through late September, average office occupancy across 10 major cities remained below 50%. The data showed a rise in recent weeks to roughly 47%, with Tuesday and Wednesday typically being the busiest office days. Microsoft researchers recently warned of productivity paranoia among managers about their hybrid workforce. Many bosses appear skeptical that their staff is being productive, even if hybrid workers are scheduling meetings, tapping out emails, and corresponding with colleagues at a furious pace. Other labor market data released Tuesday hinted at a cooling job market. There were roughly 1 million fewer job openings in August compared to July. Labor Department data showed that job openings also fell below 11 million for the first time since last November. Job openings in August totaled 10.05 million, a 10% drop from the 11.17 million reported in July, and more than a million less than expected. 
It was the biggest one-month decline since April 2020 in the early days of the COVID pandemic. The number of hires rose slightly, while total separation jumped by 182,000 quits, or those who left their jobs voluntarily rose by 100,000 for the month to 4.16 million. One primary area of interest is data which show about two job openings for every available worker. That ratio contracted to 1.67 to 1 in August. The job market has been a primary driver of inflation as the outsized demand for the scarce labor pool has helped drive up wages sharply. Average hourly earnings rose 5.2% over the 12-month period through August, but adjusted for inflation, real earnings actually declined 2.8%. Fine-tuning the nature of work after the worst days of the pandemic is an ongoing process, and another question for management will be where to cut jobs in the face of a recession. Business leaders in general are going to be cautious about how deep they cut. Amazon tells call center employees to work remotely. Amazon is reportedly nudging customer service employees to work from home as it looks to close some of its U.S.-based offices as part of a cost-cutting effort. The e-commerce giant plans to shut down multiple call centers throughout the United States in a bid to trim its real estate expenses. Bloomberg News reported, citing sources familiar with the matter, a call center in Kennewick, Washington, is said to be among the locations tabbed for closure. Amazon, which is valued at $1.2 trillion, did not comment on whether it plans to close call centers. However, a company representative confirmed that Amazon is expanding remote work among its customer service employees. What they said was, we're offering additional members of our customer service team the increased flexibility that comes with working virtually. Amazon spokesperson Brad Glasser said in a statement, we're working with employees to make sure their transition is seamless while continuing to prioritize best-in-class support for customers. Customer service reps working in Amazon's core centers represent a small portion of its overall workforce, according to the Bloomberg News. The company has allowed some core centers employees to work from home since before pandemic-era shift toward remote work. Amazon has more than 1.5 million employees. Bloomberg noted the increased emphasis on remote work could help Amazon maintain staffing and recruit new customer service workers since the hiring pool will no longer be anchored to offices. While many companies have begun pushing their employees to return to the office at least a few days per week, Amazon recently gained attention for taking a more lenient approach. Earlier this month, Amazon CEO Andy Kajasi said most of its employees have adopted a hybrid schedule that includes days working from home and the company does not plan to require otherwise. We don't have a plan to require people to come back, Jassy said during an interview. We don't right now, but we're going to proceed adaptively as we learn. Meanwhile, the plan to close cost centers and reduce office expenses could hint at Amazon's effort to improve its balance sheet during the current economic downturn. Jassy indicated that Amazon would continue to hire, but at a slower pace than it has in recent years. Amazon has posted a net loss for two straight quarters as it contends with the impact 
of soaring inflation and a slowdown in sales. Despite continued inflationary pressures in fuel, energy, and transportation costs, they said that they're making progress on the more controllable costs, and they referenced last quarter, particularly improving productivity of their fulfillment network. I do have a question on this. If they are having core centers at remote homes, how are they preparing or creating the technological environment to make sure that the data that employees are working with are safe and protected? Hurricane Eon pushes NASA's next moon rocket launch attempt to November. Kennedy Space Center Space Launch System emerged unscathed, but the storm upset NASA's plan to fly the Artemis One mission in October. At first, it was technical hurdles, but now a natural disaster has forced a delay to NASA's Artemis One mission. With the rocket tucked inside the space agency's gigantic assembly building, and with normal ground operations set to resume this week, Space Launch System won't take light until November 12th at the earliest. Hurricane Eon laid waste to much of Florida last week, resulting in the loss of life, widespread power outages, and property damage on an unfathomable scale. NASA decided to shelter the 321-foot-tall, that's 98-meters, rocket from the storm. The decision was made to row the space launch system back to the vehicle assembly building with just hours to spare. Frighteningly, Kennedy Space Center took a direct hit from the hurricane, with the facility entering into Hurricane 1 status at 6 p.m. Eastern Time last week. A portmanteau for hurricane condition Hurricane is an alert scale that triggers specific actions for an incoming hurricane. Hurricane 1, the highest possible status, gets triggered 12 hours prior to the arrival of 58 miles per hour sustained winds. During Hurricane 1, Kennedy Space Center is closed. All perimeter gates are closed, and the rideout team takes shelter at designated locations, whereas non-rideout team member personnel are released during Hurricane 2. Thankfully, the facility emerged unscathed. There was no damage to Artemis flight hardware, and facilities are in good shape with only minor water intrusion identified in a few locations. The next step will be for ground teams to extend the access platforms around the rocket and the Orion spacecraft to allow for additional inspections and maintenance tasks, which will include the retesting and resetting of the rocket's flight termination system. NASA is now officially saying its third launch attempt of the space launch system won't happen until November. Focusing efforts on the November launch period allows time for employees at Kennedy to address the needs of their families and homes after the storm and for the teams to identify additional checkouts needed before returning to the pad for launch, according to NASA. The Artemis One mission is an attempt to send an unscrewed Orion capsule on a journey to the moon and back. It will set the stage for more ambitious missions as NASA seeks a sustained return to the moon. NASA says it will announce a specific launch date in the coming days, but it's likely to fall within a launch period that runs from November 12 and 27, 
with no opportunities on November 20, 21, or 26. Failing this, NASA could try again during a launch period that runs December 9th to the 23rd. Micron picks Syracuse suburb for huge computer chip plant. Micron picks Clay, New York, a suburb of Syracuse, for huge computer chips that would bring up to 9,000 jobs. The selected site is the White Pine Commerce Park owned by Onondaga County, which spans 1,300 acres. Micron Technology plans to spend up to $100 billion building a mega complex of computer chip plants in Syracuse northern suburbs in what would be the largest single private investment in New York State history. The project would create up to 9,000 jobs over the next 20 years at the White Pine Commerce Park in Clay. The project is expected to bring in an additional 40,000 supply chain and construction jobs to the Syracuse area and New York State. Micron President and CEO Sanjay Mehrotra said the company would build up to four separate semiconductor fabrication plants in phases at the 1,300-acre site off Route 31. The first project would employ 3,000 people in one $20 billion megafab that would begin production in the latter half of the decade. Mahrotra said site preparation would begin next year with construction starting in 2024. The fabs, or otherwise known as foundries, are plants where silicon wafers are created or turned into integrated circuits. The Chinese chips that power personal computers, cell phones, and other electronic devices. Micron said the local employees would be paid an average salary of more than $100,000 per year. The company's plans call for building a massive 7.2 million square foot complex that would include the nation's largest clean room space. The clean room facilities alone would cover about 2.4 million square feet. The news is a huge win for the Syracuse area and New York State, which competed with at least four other states, including Texas, to land the Micron plant. New York State offered state and local incentives worth at least $6 billion over 20 years. The deal connects Onondaga County to one of the world's biggest producers of memory chips, Micron, which is based in Boise, Idaho, and employs more than 44,000 people worldwide and recorded revenue of $31 billion in its last fiscal year. Micron's investment would tie for the largest by any chip manufacturer since Congress passed the Chips and Science Act that provides $52 billion in incentives for companies to make more components in the United States. Mahotra said the investment in central New York would also be the largest in Micron's history, equipping it to build high-end memory chips for a market that is expected to double in the years ahead. There are billions in incentives. Micron would have to apply to the United States Commerce Department for the federal incentives. Separately, New York State agreed to an incentive package that includes up to $5.5 billion in Excelsior tax credits over 20 years. The state also agreed to spend $200 million on road and infrastructure improvements around the site. Micron agreed to invest $250 million into the fund. New York would provide another $100 million. 
The remaining $150 million would come from local, state, and national partners. Onondaga County incentives includes a $10 million investment with Syracuse University to establish a semiconductor research and development center and $5 million to fund a skills development program for the chip industry at Onondaga Community College. The company's decision is expected to transform the central New York economy over the next decade as thousands of high-paying jobs are created and other related tech businesses and vendors for Micron are lured to the region. Chip manufacturers pay more than $100,000 per year, on average, for skilled production workers that include assemblers and fabricators, maintenance and repair technicians, electricians, and engineers. Most of the openings are filled by college-educated and high-skill workers, but about 20% of the jobs go to those without a college degree, according to the Semiconductor Industry Association. The plant will require a massive effort to build, train, and attract a skilled workforce that can excel at advanced manufacturing jobs. Those familiar with Micron's plans say the company is expected to fill the jobs by recruiting locally, nationally, and globally. In addition to the permanent workforce, Micron will need thousands of construction workers to build out its massive complex in clay for the next 20 years. The new plant in central New York will make Micron's DRAM or Dynamic Random Access Memory Chips which use a type of memory found in all modern computers. DRAM sales account for more than 70% of Micron revenues. What is a gig worker? A gig worker is an independent worker who operates in an on-demand capacity for one or many employers. These independent workers perform tasks or offer services at will for companies and customers. Gig workers are paid based on the completion of those tasks rather than on an hourly or salary basis. Gig workers are considered independent contractors and aren't subject to certain labor laws like minimum wage or sick leave. As independent contractors, gig workers are required to provide their own health insurance, unemployment insurance, and cover the employer portion of Social Security taxes, in exchange for many benefits enjoyed by traditional employees. Gig workers enjoy independent work where they set their own hours, may work part-time, and have the freedom to choose specific projects or jobs. In other words, they can take the job or decide not to take the job. I've been in that role, and I find there's a great freedom to it. Well, the Federal Trade Commission and the Department of Labor are now each developing classification rules on what is a gig worker. Two agencies. The FTC wants to protect gig workers from unfair or deceptive algorithms. The agency also hopes to tackle pay issues and collusion. The Federal Trade Commission is making its own bid to protect gig workers against exploitation. The regulators has adopted a policy statement detailing how it will tackle gig workers' problems. The FTC plans to step in when there are misrepresentation about pay, costs, benefit, and work terms. Officials also expect to intervene with unfair or deceptive algorithms, harsh contracts, and anti-competitive behavior such as wage-fixing 
and monopoly-creating mergers. The Commission said the classification of workers wouldn't affect enforcement, so companies can't avoid repercussions by classifying people as contractors instead of employees. Violators may have to pay fines and change their practices, and the Federal Trade Commission could partner with other government bodies, such as the Justice Department and National Labor Relations Board, to address issues. There are gaps. It could be difficult for the FTC to prove algorithm-driven abuse, for instance, and it's not clear which non-contractual restraints might hurt workers' freedom of movement. However, this could still serve as a warning to gig companies that might hide steep operating costs, fight unionization efforts, or collude with rivals to keep wages low. The FTC isn't alone in hoping to improve the lot of gig workers. A bipartisan measure in Congress introduced to the House and Senate this February is meant to provide portable benefits to gig workers. Last year, the Labor Department revoked a rule that made it harder to protect those workers' labor rights. States and cities have also filed lawsuits and otherwise taken efforts to bolster working conditions. However, the FTC's policy provides an extra nationwide safeguard that might further discourage attempts to exploit the gig economy. Now, this news item was released September the 29th, and then following that, just released October the 11th, the Labor Department moved to change independent contractors' classification rule. The administration has issued a highly anticipated proposal on how it will approach independent contractor status under federal wage law. The proposal, released just yesterday, Tuesday, by the U.S. Labor Department, clarifies when workers should be classified as independent contractors who are in business for themselves or employees who are afforded the full minimum wage, overtime, and other protections provided under the Fair Labor Standards Act. Gig companies such as Uber Technologies and Lyft Inc. and construction, trucking, and other industries that use independent contractors to staff their fleets are watching closely what this rule may or may not be. Businesses say their operating costs would skyrocket if they were broadly required to reclassify the independent contractors as employees due to the tax liabilities and minimum wage, labor, safety, and other legal requirements that apply to employees. The acting head of the Department of Labor Wage and Hourly Division said rulemaking wasn't likely to result in large worker classification changes. And he said the following, What we anticipate is that this will really help provide guidance to both avoid and prevent misclassification. But this is a framework that has been used and has been well recognized and understood. The agency's top attorney also noted that during the press conference that the proposal is not intended to target any particular industry or business model. It's intended to provide an analysis that would apply to all industries, whether it's newer or older, to different business models. What are the major changes, then? When determining a worker status, the administration will use a multi-factor economic realities test that considers factors of the working relationship to determine whether the worker is truly in business for themselves. The proposed changes would be a return to a totality of the circumstances. Analysis, according to the proposal, 
evaluating all of the factors involved in the working relationships equally. The rulemaking also would rescind a similar multi-factor test, but that gave greater weight to how much control workers have over their job duties and their opportunities for profit and loss when determining whether a worker is an employee or an independent contractor. Department of Labor officials said the simplified independent contractor test is inconsistent with federal court decisions and would result in more workers being misclassified as independent contractors when they should be employees. The current test includes five factors, but two were given far greater weight, which is the nature and degree of the worker's control over the work and the worker's opportunity for profit or loss based on personal initiative or investment. The new proposal would consider those two factors and four others, investment by the worker and the employer, the degree of permanence of the working relationship, the extent to which the work performed is an integral part of the employer's business, and the degree of skill initiative exhibited by the worker. I'm reading all of this very carefully, and it's not very precise. It's not defined in clear language, but what they want to do is redefine what a gig worker is. Why don't they just keep it simple? It's really an agreement between one person doing the work for another and the person who's doing independent work is responsible as a self-employer. Why can't they just keep it simple and not have two different agencies working on it at the same time? Presenting the IT Pro Series with Benjamin Rockwell. This is Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's time to get down to business. This is where we focus on, yes, you, IT, and the workplace. And sometimes we get a little bit far from IT. There is some element of information technology within what I'm going to talk about here over the course of the next few minutes. But I wanted to address something that is changing yet again. And this is coming under the U.S. Department of Labor. And they are going to be or they may have just, depending on the timing of this, I, you know, I'm, I record these and sometimes it's, you know, it's going to happen or it did just happen. Uh, they're going to be doing a new set of rules in regards to independent contractors. Now, this is something that's moved back and forth and who can be considered an independent contractor or who has to be considered an employee has gone in a variety of different directions. Some of this is political. Some of this is just a matter of what's right and wrong. Sometimes this is on the state level. In this case, we're talking the federal level. And there are always different types of rules that that come along. For instance, some of these rules say you can only employ so many independent contractors. Some rules say that you uh, you're going to have to convert them to employees if your primary business is in the same realm. So, uh, you know, there's a, a few different things and they all go back and forth in regards to can that person work for competing companies? Uh, that's another one. So uh, recently, 
the Biden administration had directed, hey, we're going to go in this particular direction. It's the opposite direction of, yes, the Trump administration a while back where they said, okay, uh, it, we're going to make it easier to classify workers as independent contractors. Now it's going to be under the Biden administration. It's going to be harder to it, look. However, it all rolls out. It's going to it's it's going to affect us all. You know, the, the, one of the things that I go back in my mind uh, to probably this is about four years ago or somewhere in there, three and a half years ago, there was a, a, a law or a ruling in California that was so tightened down as far as contractors that I knew a gig musician, good friend of mine for a couple of decades. He's a bass player and he's an amazing bass player, but it would prohibit him from going and doing independent gigs in various locations where you would play music. Yes, so he he want to go. They want to hire him for a music festival. It's a one day gig. It's a gig. No, they'd have to employ him as yes, an employee for a day, and that makes it really difficult when you consider. Okay, do we hire a guy for a day? And we have to then pay unemployment for him and we have to pay insurance for him and we have to do all of these different things as if he's an employee. Well, yeah, that got pretty tricky. So let me go through a couple of the different options that they might move in. One of the options is, are the employees or contractors economically dependent on a company? Okay, so you are an independent contractor, but you have no other contracts. Okay, well, then maybe you should be an employee. That might be the rule. Or it might go under the ABC rule, which is the the California uh, test, but it's also falling under a number of other states. Uh, I think Massachusetts and New York. The ABC test goes like this. The worker is free from the control and direction of the hiring entity in connection with the performance of the work, both under the contract for the performance of the work and in fact. Part two, that's, that's a part A rather that this is part B that the worker performs work that is outside the usual course of the hiring entity's business. Part C, that the workers customarily engaged in an independently established trade, occupation, or business of the same nature as the work performed. So there's a lot here that that, that you have to unpack. Essentially, what they're saying throughout all of this is, okay, if you're an IT worker, Okay, the the company may not be an IT, so therefore you could be classified as an independent contractor. You're uh, you're engaged in something that's an independently established trade, occupation, or business. So again, that that really reinforces it, and also you are free from the control and direction in connection to the performance of your work. You're being hired to get something done, and you do it. That also means that, yeah, IT folks can be hired as independent contractors. But then we move into, yeah, we're limiting some of the other things. 
such as yeah, the the gig musicians. Or are we? I want you to think about this. You're under the control and direction. And, uh, you know, you're being hired for a, a festival. Well, the festival is part of that entity's business. And the worker, okay, yeah, it, it, they're an independent musician. But it's only one part of it. See, they have to make all three parts. And it goes back and forth. This is going to be an ongoing thing. I want you to watch this as it unfolds on the news. Of course, we'll probably talk about this a little bit more over the course of the coming months if it becomes newsworthy. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. Cars are going electric. But what happens to the used batteries? This summer, General Motors boats were being recalled because of a series of rare but destructive fires sparked when drivers left their cars charging overnight. General Motors had traced the problem to flaws in the lithium-ion battery cells manufactured by South Korea's LG Chem. Now, GM is expanding the recall to all 141,000 boats sold worldwide since 2017. Fixing them would be a massive operation. Unlike the lead-acid batteries inside most gas-powered vehicles, the lithium-ion battery pack inside the boat runs the full wheelbase of the car and weighs 960 pounds. It contains hundreds of battery cells that are delicate and finicky. When taken apart for repairs, they can be dangerous and incorrect handling can lead to noxious fumes and fires. There is a company, Spires New Technologies, that takes flawed batteries and transports, tests, and when possible, disassembles, fixes, and refurbishes them. When batteries can't be fixed or reused, the company recycles some of its on-site facilities. It also stores batteries, lots of them. Spires New Technology Main Warehouse in Oklahoma City holds hundreds of electric car batteries stacked on shelves that just 30 feet into the air. With the boat recall, General Motors will send them many more. Those batteries and millions more like them will eventually come off the road are a challenge for the world's electrified future. By the end of the decade, the International Energy Agency estimates that there would be 148 million and 230 million battery-powered vehicles on the road worldwide, accounting for up to 12% of the global automotive fleet. Lithium-ion batteries, like other electronics, are toxic and can cause destructive fires that spread quickly, a danger that runs especially high when they are stored together. In Spire's New Technologies warehouse, Bright red emergency water lines snake across the ceilings, a safeguard against calamity of a lithium-ion-caused fire. Electric vehicles are more eco-friendly than their gas-burning counterparts, but they still come with environmental costs. Batteries contain valuable minerals, like cobalt and lithium, which are primarily extracted and processed overseas, where they cost local communities dearly in labor abuses and vital resources like water and contribute to global carbon emissions. In an ideal world, each of these lithium-ion batteries stacked in the Oklahoma warehouse 
would be reused and recycled to create the lithium-ion batteries for future use with little new material required. Experts call this a circular economy. To make it work, recyclers need to come up with an efficient and planet-friendly way to reduce a used battery to its most valuable parts and then remake them into something new. In theory, recycled material could supply more than half of the cobalt, lithium, and nickel in new batteries by 2040. Even as electric vehicles get more popular, the emerging EV industry needs a smart end-of-life process for batteries. The average vehicle of today may have three to four owners and cross international borders in its lifetime. When it finally dies, it falls into a globe-spanning network of auctioneers, dismantlers, and scrapyards that try to dispose of cars as properly as possible. Today's system mostly works because scrap metal has value, and there's a healthy market for conventional auto parts. Dismantlers include those that fly under the radar of regulators, make a fine art of wringing every penny from a dead car. That includes lessened acid batteries that start gas-powered cars. More than 95% of them are recycled today because consumers can claim deposits when they return the batteries, and they are relatively simple to dismantle. Lithium-ion battery packs, on the other hand, are of radically different designs depending on the manufacturer. The voltages in these batteries are lethal. Extracting the valuable materials from an EV battery is difficult and expensive. The most expensive is getting dead batteries to those facilities. About 40% of the overall cost of recycling, according to one recent study, is transportation. EV battery packs are so massive, they need to be shipped by truck in specially designed cases to reach centralized recycling facilities. Handling lithium-ion batteries is so demanding that dealerships have chosen to ship an entire 4,000-pound damaged vehicle just so the recycler can extract and repair or recycle the 1,000-pound battery inside. And resource-intensive that it generally exceeds the cost of digging up new materials from the ground. Currently, the only battery material that can be recycled profitably is cobalt, because it's just rare and expensive. Even cobalt-free batteries are toxic and a fire danger, though they still contain plenty of valuable materials like lithium and nickel. But recycling them responsibly is simply less profitable. In short, whoever ends up with a dead battery will likely have to pay a recycler to take it off their hands. EV battery packs are so big and hard to hide, a landfill won't take them knowingly because of fire risk. A massive pack dumped somewhere is easier to trace back to an owner, or at least to its manufacturer. Some electric cars will end up abroad, as some 40% of gas-powered vehicles currently do. It's a common fate because cars deemed unfit for U.S. roads can still be shipped overseas and sold at a steep discount. Sending used cars abroad is an important way of making electric vehicles accessible to poorer countries. But it raises the question of whether these places are prepared for a safe when the vehicles die. Stockpiling batteries in the hopes that recycling costs will eventually fall or that the value of batteries will rise, well, government will likely have to get involved.
Presenting Technology Chatter with Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston. Marty Winston joins me now. And Marty, this this particular topic, uh, I, I, I want to ask you, uh, it was what, a few weeks ago, maybe longer, we were talking about lawnmowers. And I did we talk yeah. about that on air? I can't uh, remember. We, but We talked about the fact that I had one coming, but I hadn't tried it yet. Okay. I was, I was however, excited with what it promised or seemed to promise. Sure. And I have since used it and my excitement was justified. Okay. So let's 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 look at this. For some of you, yes, I'm aware you're in Alaska and yeah, mowing season is gone. For others, you're in Southern California and well, you don't mow cacti. Uh, and then for others for others in like New Orleans, I don't even know how long how long do they mow lawns in New Orleans? Uh, un, 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 until happy hour. Until happy hour, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there might be a month in there somewhere, yeah, somewhere, somewhere around yeah. Mardi Gras where we celebrate in, instead of mowing the lawn because we can't. I don't know, whatever it is. Uh, so, so, I'm not sure. Well, so, anyway. Yeah, tell I me. Had, I had Ego, uh, you've seen their brand at Ace and, and, and Lowe's and so mm-hmm. on, sending me their LM2135 Select Cut dual blade mower and to be sure this is electric it uses their 56 volt battery and if you've seen that thing it's about the size of a bag of flour a bag of sugar okay it, it's big it's kind of heavy but it's good for 40 minutes to an hour of mm-hmm. mowing mm-hmm. and okay. it doesn't it doesn't sound like uh you know the, the euphonium it sounds <laughs> sounds more like a loud vacuum cleaner out on the lawn the, the cutting deck has two blades spinning. Okay. It's got a, a main blade and a secondary blade. You've got your choice of which one you're going to install. It, it could be a mulching blade, a high lift uh, bagging blade, or there's also a lowered energy impact blade if you want the battery to last just a little bit longer. I use mulching okay. blade. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I went out. I, I have some grass that's, say, 10 inches tall in the backyard because of water flow back there and the fact that no one ever cuts it. I said that... <laughs> I set the deck down to three inches. Mm-hmm, yeah. I walked into it. It didn't hiccup. It cut right through it. No challenge. It was nice, nice. just so sweet. You know, you go into this ratty, ratty, craggy grass kind of stuff and you yeah. end up with a haircut. It's just. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And, and if you're really, really worried about it being close to winter now. It has an LED headlight. <laughs> going after nice. That. Yes. Well, you know that that kind of makes sense. I, I, you know, I, I, you know, I, I, I think you know. There's, we're, we're getting to the age where people, uh, the day end age where people are looking at, yeah, uh, because of varying work hours or whatever. You might be mowing in yeah, darker you've got times. You got to adapt yeah. yourself to what you got available. Sure, that that yeah. happens all the time. Uh, this this particular mower has a 21 inch swath. Okay. So it's doing a pretty good mow all at once. You can adjust the height, the cutting height. There are eight different settings. There mm-hmm, are three mm-hmm. settings for the handle height, and I found that there was a setting that made my back hurt less. Nice. Okay. Why didn't I know this fifty years ago? Yeah. Really. <laughs> sure. All right. So, so now is it? Um, now it's a push mower, or is this? It, this one's pushed. They also okay. have some that are uh, self-propelled. Okay. Now, one of the nice things about it, 
You know that those exercise uh, pieces of gear like treadmills and so on that fold up against a wall? Yeah, yeah. Uh, this kind of does that, too. When you're done cutting, the handle folds forward and its base is, is kind of squashed and flat against it. You pick it up and you've got a thin thing against one wall in the garage. Oh, nice. I like that. Okay. I thought you might. Yeah. Uh, the, the mower... Uh, that 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 the brush it's brushless and with that mm. power pack and that brushless mower motor on it um, the motor mower yeah it's all together uh, <laughs> I have to if you've ever tried landscaper gear or the the mowers that only run on premium gas that's the kind of power this thing is delivering okay all right and, you know it's upscale without being upscale uh, and uh, you won't need hearing protectors because it's not all the time. You know, okay. it's really yeah, yeah. doing a good thing. Uh, we got some other stuff from Ego. And do we have uh, time to go into a little bit yeah, of that? Yeah, we, we've got uh, about a minute and a half for you to good, cover one more good. item. Yeah. Uh, I got their 18-inch chainsaw. Same battery. Okay. Put that thing on. Now, I've had some smaller electric chainsaws, and I could cut through tiny trees. This is good for a four- or five-inch tree unless it's a hickory Hickory, mm. I can't cut with a, a, an army uh, maneuver. <laughs> <laughs> but we've been taking uh, maples and elms and birch uh, and even oak down in the yard. The, okay. the ranch nice. owl trees that just get in the way. Uh, and uh, it's it, it's got lots of safety measures. It It's got an instant break when you let go. The oil reservoir, I haven't had to refill it yet. It's visible. You put a big blub, blub, blub of oil in there, and it just keeps working. Cleaning it out, no tools. It unscrews with a little kind of handle thing. Mm -hmm. you, yeah, yeah. You clean that out like everybody else with a screwdriver just to get the junk sure, yeah, chunk okay. out of there. Put it back together and just runs. I absolutely love it. It makes me feel like a lumberjack. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, so I've seen the Ego brand. Uh, at, at Lowe's. Where else is it? You said at, uh, at, at Ace, Ace Hardware. Ace Hardware, okay. And uh, Amazon and, and some other places. I don't think you'll ever see it at Home Depot in the next few years. Yeah, it seems like, yeah, if it's available at Home Depot, it's not at Lowe's and vice versa for a lot of those, a lot of those tools. I, I believe that's called the family feud, but I'm not sure. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin, and thank you, Marty. Public service announcements. Computer club meetings in the New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut tri-state region. Log on to the club website for more information on remote meeting ID. The New York Amateur Computer Club meets Thursday, October the 13th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom, nyacc.org for meeting ID. The Long Island Macintosh Users Group meets Friday, October the 15th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. The website is limac.org. The Brookdale Computer Users Group has a presentation, How to Make the Best of Video Meetings. Thursday, October the 27th. Meeting time is 6.45 p.m. Virtual meeting via Zoom. And their website is bcug.com. Tech Ed Connect. 
formerly known as the Westchester PC Users Group, has a presentation on interruptible power supplies. Thursday, November the 3rd, meeting time is 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom, and the website is wpcug.org. The Amateur Computer Group of New Jersey, Friday, November the 4th, meeting time is 8 p.m., online virtual meeting via Jitsi. Website is acgnj.org. The King's Bite Computer Club meets Tuesday, November the 8th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. at the Park Plaza Restaurant, 220 Cadman Plaza West in Brooklyn. For more information, the phone number is 347-278-7320. Happy computing! Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email addressed to hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of Joe King, Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, and Marty Winston, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy until we meet again, same time, same station, next week.